0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, He was lost and is found. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Please be seated and please turn around to the corner where Don is and wave hello to our friends at All Saints in Reisterstown. We are, uh, if the technology is working, uh, live streaming this uh, up about 45 minutes to the northwest of here, Uh, and I want to tell those of you in Reisterstown, you do not need to adjust your set. Uh, This is, in fact, a rose chasuble. Uh, We have a lovely purple one that will be back next week, but there are two Sundays of the year when rose vestments are prescribed. One of them is the third Sunday of Advent which is Gaudete Sunday, and this is Litare Sunday, the fourth Sunday in Lent. We're halfway through Lent. This is the the halfway mark, and uh, of course, if you're maintaining a Lenten discipline, you you may always relax it on a Sunday uh, because Sunday is, of course, a feast. It is the Lord's Day. Uh, And uh, for those of us who prefer not to relax our Lenten disciplines on Sundays during Lent, but if you wanted to do it just one time, today would be the day. So uh, I probably should have uh, called Rite Aid to warn them that there might be a run on chocolate after the service. Uh, But yes, so we have these lovely rose vestments that uh, I've never had the privilege of wearing before, but I'm quite sure uh, there will be pictures taken of this and shared with people who know me. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. At one point, we even regarded Christ in this way, but we don't do that anymore. Paul's talking about a radical change of mentality, radical change in thinking, a shift that is brought about by the fact that God has done something new. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says... What you have is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And God is the one who is behind all of this. Because he reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. God was in Christ... Reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. If anything, our English word reconciliation is too weak to convey what Paul is trying to get across here with the Greek word he uses. In Ephesians, Paul says this, About us. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So, when Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, he's not talking about taking people who had a couple of people who had a little bit of a disagreement and bringing them together and getting them to sort of shake hands and say sorry and promise not to slash each other's tires. When, God, when Paul's talking about reconciliation, about God accomplishing the work of, of reconciliation. He's talking about the work involved in making an opponent an ally, the work involved in making an enemy a friend. As for you, Paul says, and me too, like everybody else, we were by nature objects of wrath. By our nature as sinful human beings, rebellious against the loving God who made us. We put ourselves in the position of being God's enemies. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even while we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace. That you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. You didn't do this, it's God's gift. It's not by anybody's works so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, if you look at the language here in 2 Corinthians, you look at the verbs, God's the subject. God doesn't need to be reconciled to anything, but we do. And God's the one who does that reconciling, which means that we are Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God were making His appeal through us. And so we implore people on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is the word that God has entrusted to us, His servants, to share with the world that so desperately needs this good news. You see, the, the the worldly approach is to if you if if you have the humility, if you can get to the point that the the Son the disobedient son, the prodigal son, and the story got to, and you realize you're a mess, then, then you think, well, maybe, maybe if, if I promise to work really hard at it, maybe if I promise to humble myself, maybe if I come back on my hands and knees and just beg my father, maybe he'll at least l- let me, you know, work with the other hired men, and, and then maybe I can at least eke out a living But that's not what God offers. God doesn't offer a situation where you earn His favor and He doesn't offer a situation where you are simply placed in a position among the masses. No, He treats us like beloved sons. I love the way that the Greek works and our translation doesn't quite convey this about when it when it describes the the prodigal son i think the nrsv says he came to his senses literally it's he came to himself he came to realize who he was as a beloved child of his father he didn't understand all that that might possibly entail but his first step was coming to himself coming to realize his situation. And, and likewise, the psalmist in our psalm, in Psalm 32, the psalmist who, who says, how blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed is the person whose sin Yahweh doesn't count against Him and in whose spirit is no deceit. That, that word, "Ashrei" is the, how blessed How happy, sometimes it's translated, surely this is the word that Jesus was using when in the Beatitudes, when He began His Sermon on the Mount, He said, how blessed are the poor, how blessed are the meek, how blessed are you who endure persecution on my behalf, and how blessed is He whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. But in order to know this blessing, like the prodigal son, you've got to come to yourself. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And it's fun because the rabbis argue about this. They argue about whether uh, the, he was wasting away because he was groaning so loudly or whether he was groaning so loudly because he was wasting away. They didn't have TV back then. Day and night, he says, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. The psalmist is talking about the poisonous, toxic nature of unconfessed sin, of the sin that we hide, the sin that we hang on to, that we're not willing to bring out to the light. But then, he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up. My iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. As Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. He didn't save us because of anything we did to impress Him. He saved us strictly by His grace that He poured out on us. I've been reading this Lent a book by the poet Malcolm Gite. He's an Anglican priest and a magnificent poet and he's got one of these collections I read for Advent and now I'm reading this one for Lent where He's got some poems that are his and some that he's grabbed from other people, and he writes this magnificent commentary on them. Uh, this past week, he was interspersing parts of Dante, Dante's Divine Comedy with his own. And the poem on Tuesday just brought me up short. The folks at All Saints know this because I put this in their e-newsletter this week. But just close your eyes. Some of you already have your eyes closed. Wake up, close your eyes again. Just listen. Listen to these words. Begin the song exactly where you are, for where you are contains where you have been and holds the vision of your final sphere. And do not fear the memory of sin. There's a light that heals and where it falls transfigures and redeems the darkest stain into translucent color. Loose the veils and draw the curtains back, unbar the doors of that dread threshold where your spirit fails. The hopeless gate that holds in all the fears that haunt your shadowed city, fling it wide and open to the light that finds and fares through the dark pathways where you run and hide through all the alleys of your riddled heart as pierced and open as his wounded side. Open the map to him and make a start and down the dizzy spirals through the dark his light will go before you. Let him chart and name and heal. Expose the hidden ache to him, the stinging fires and smoke That blind your judgment, carry you away the murk and muted gloom in which you cannot find the love that you once thought worth dying for. Call him to all you cannot call to mind. He comes to harrow hell, and now to your well guarded fortress let his love descend. The icy ego at your frozen core can hear His call at last. Will you respond? See, our reading cut off early. The passage from 2 Corinthians really goes on to chapter 6, verse 2. Sometimes the chapter divisions are in just the right place, and then there are times like this. Because after Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He says, so as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor Now is the day of salvation. Maybe you're waiting for something. Maybe you're waiting for a change of circumstances. Maybe you're waiting for just the right moment when you'll feel like you're completely ready. Maybe maybe you're waiting for God to strike you out of the blue, to write something in the sky to say, Now is the time. But I think for many of us, and I experienced this very powerfully myself this week as I was reading this poem, many of us are hearing God say, now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for you to do that thing you know I have been calling you to do. Now is the time for you to take steps to stop doing the thing that you know I've been calling you to stop doing. Now is the time for you to recommit yourself to serving me and to forsaking all other gods. Now is the time. And so before we proceed to the creed, I just want to give us a moment of silence. And if now is the time for you, here in the silence, in the peace of your hearts that God alone can give, welcome him. Welcome the moving of his spirit. Invite his light to transform every stain into translucent color.